What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back. Dan Favalli is back from NBAMath.com and uh, and a uh, writer at Bleacher Report, where uh, he puts out great stuff like "Who Should Be Tanking Right Now" that I read this afternoon that you should definitely check out. Uh, but Dan, good evening. How are you? I'm doing well, Chase. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, man. Uh, I enjoyed your piece today on the teams who should tank because I am obviously very pro tank, very not like Kevin O'Connor pro tank, but enough <laughs> to enjoy it. Uh, I I'm not uh, yeah I I liked it and I I agreed with just about every team in your list. Who who on your list were you most kind of wishy washy on as to whether or not they really should go through a full rebuild? I had to keep myself from putting the Knicks at number one. Ooh, okay. Just put the top five teams that should steer into the tank. And mm. I, I mean, they might organically tank now. You have Chris Dobbs and Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, injured at the moment, and they're getting waxed as we speak by <laughs> the Indiana Pacers. Mm-hmm. But they're just, they overachieved at the beginning of the season based on a home heavy schedule. They don't have cap space after foolishly paying Tim Hardaway Jr. People think that that's all of a sudden a good deal, but it's, it's not. So you need to get value out of this draft pick. Uh, and the quickest way to do that, you know, try and tank for top five lottery odds. Then you can move forward with, if you really believe in Tim Hardaway, you have him, Chris Stops, Frank Nielakina, and a, a top five pick. Because the only other way you're going to really get meaningful improvement would be to kind of clear the salary decks. And you can't do that without trading future first round picks and you shouldn't be doing that and by the time you're ready to have cap space Chris Dobbs is going to be on his super max deal and you'll have to kind of overcome that cap hit so I talk myself into putting them at number three because I think that they're a lot worse than they've shown playing 500 basketball thus far but if they end up in like 32 33 win purgatory that they're, they're going to be absolutely screwed moving forward <laughs> man just dumping all kinds of cold water on all the Knicks fans who've really enjoyed this hot start. I mean, I think, what are they, the ninth seed right now if the playoffs start today? Right behind the Pacers, who they're losing to, I believe. <laughs> or it's like their switch. Something like that right now. I've, I don't have the standings in front of me, but I'm pretty sure they're like neck and neck for that uh, eight seed that everybody's just dying to get. Everybody really wants an opportunity to play either the Cavs, who have won like 11 in a row, or the Celtics, who've kind of stumbled a little bit as of late. Uh, yeah, I don't think the Knicks making the playoffs is the best thing as an eight seed, but at the same time, I want KP in the playoffs as much as possible. So, I don't know, I'm conflicted with the Knicks. I, I will say about the Hardaway thing, I don't think any of us would hate it if it was like a one or two year deal. I think it's more the years where they locked them up to this four year deal. Who was offering Tim Hardaway Jr. a four year deal? I remember that whole report of the Knicks were worried the Hawks were going to match. The Hawks were not giving him four years. If we've learned anything from this team <laughs> this year, they are all about losing as many games as humanly possible. There's already been like 37 D League moves or G League moves, excuse me, to start the season. I get the email every day. So I'm aware of how often they're sending people to Erie and bringing people back. There is a point guard named Josh Maggett on this team right now. 
that is getting minutes every now and then. It's not a team that's trying to win games. And I have no doubt that there was a 0% chance that the Hawks were going to bring Tim Hardaway back. Maybe if Budenholzer still had executive powers, he could have come back because Budenholzer did trade a first round pick for Tim Hardaway on draft night a couple years ago. So maybe that's part of it of just not uh, admitting that it was a sunk cost in some capacity. But I, I like Tim Hardaway. He's been good this year. He's fun to watch when he's on. And he had the one of my favorite shots of the year where that uh, that uh, end of quarter shot where he like caught it midair and 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 pushed it in that was just oh, yeah. I, I w- i'm calling it pushed it in because he did not shoot that basketball he he lofted it and just the touch on it was was great it was magical like give me shots like that over nasty dunks every day of the week because i feel like those are way more insane and require way more uh skill so i think the knicks won the deal because of that last second <laughs> uh, loft from i mean Hardaway. The, the Hawks might have gone like four and forty-eight because all of a sudden I think that was the report ESPN.com Zach Lowe had out there. Just because if you look at the way Tim Hardaway Jr. is playing now, and even kind of how he played with the Hawks last year, largely in the second unit, that's good value, and that's the whole point of free agency. So even if Tim Hardaway Jr. is playing well as he has for a good part of this season, you could have had him for less. No one was mm. giving Tim Hardaway Jr. seventy-one point six million, and the key to being a half competent functioning franchises to find those values in free agency and yet the Knicks gave out a 2016 contract not only in 2017 but like well into the free agency period when everyone knew that the the market was depressed so his performance is always going to just be tainted by the fact that they probably could have had him I would say at 4 and 56 maybe 4 and 57 so you're looking at like 15, 14, 15 million dollars cheaper. And that's going to hamstring you moving forward when you look at Noah being on the books, Cantor still on the books uh, into next year. And eventually you're going to have to pay Kristaps Porzingis. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how they kind of work it. And I think that comes back to what the Hawks are doing is smart. They're trying hard and they have some players who are fun to watch, but they're not winning games. And the Knicks kind of need to, I would think, by the at the tail end of the all-star break, they need to kind of enter that mode too. We know Kristaps has some elbow issues. Just pleasantly shut him down and let the rest of the roster run oh, wild. Man, shut him down? Uh, Maybe once every five games or something. I know it's an iffy territory, but you're winning if you're going to win too much now. And I, I don't know. I mean, they might actually just be naturally worse than their record reflects. And I still believe that they are. As they play more road games, we'll see that. And I'll fully admit, even tonight, you don't want to watch that team without Kristaps Porzingis, they're just getting absolutely mm-hmm. destroyed. But I, I do think that they kind of need to follow the the Hawks. They don't need to go full bulls, but I think the Hawks are a nice, happy medium at this point. I don't think the Hawks are a happy medium. I think if you look at this roster and who's getting rotation minutes right now, there's no medium. They're embracing the tank in a very, very <laughs> confident way. Uh, I'm not sure how long this can work with Boonholzer. like there's been a bunch of talk with doc rivers as the guy who is on the hot seat with just the injury luck that the clippers have had to start the season and that it, they're basically out of the playoffs already i think Boonholzer is a really interesting case too because I, travis link is not tied to him obviously right the hawks are going to lose a lot for the next couple of years there's no path to them getting back to the playoffs for the next couple of years maybe three years if you look at the top eight 
seeds in the East right now. I just, I don't know who's falling out. Like you still have the Hornets who are trying to win and they're on the outside looking in. I just, I'm not certain how many years away the Hawks are totally, but I do know they're several years away and I don't know if Budenholzer is going to be able to stick around for three years to get there. Vogel is someone else I think is really interesting after their hot start. I think he's probably on the outs. I think there's going to be a lot of really good coaches on the market because I think Budenholzer, Vogel, and Doc are all really great coaches, but I think they're all entering situations where the franchise is zagging and they've been zigging with these guys for years and it's just time for a fresh face not the way that frank vogel got screwed over in indiana where Bird just has this arbitrary uh, amount of time that a coach can uh, be the coach of his team in indiana but i do think all three of those guys i wouldn't bet on being with their team in the next two years or less yeah, is that I, fair? Is that a hot take or is that fair? No, I think that's completely fair. Um, I actually was just working on something about coaches on the hot seat, and I'm just I was reluctant to put buttonholes over there because I, I agree when you're not attached to the current regime, it's pretty dangerous. But I kind of feel like he more so than a lot of the other coaches in this situation. Uh, it seems like he's kind of bending to what the front office wants. Like we saw John Collins get an uptick in minutes before he was Love injured. John Collins. Uh, he's fantastic. He's just he just has so much bounce and just tries so hard. And his reload time to get back up in the air, like if you ever watched him jump, it seems like he doesn't mm-hmm. even touch the ground before he goes back up. He so, doesn't know how to use his body a lot yet. So I think that's another thing where he really does when he figures out how to use that springy athleticism. It's just going to be scary, and he's just going to be such a pain on both ends of the floor. I'm not entirely certain what he does really well other than rebounding. I think he's just a monster on the boards and just his motor i guess is another strength that it just he never tires but he just seems i don't want to like it seems like the draymond green stuff just gets so lazy these days it's like everybody looks at anyone with a even remotely similar skill set as like the next potential draymond green but i will say collins the one thing that he reminds me of green is where it's like you can see early on kind of like what you saw in golden state when (laughs) david lee was starting at the four where green would go in for minutes and kind of what jordan bell's doing where it's just you see them on the floor and then you look at the box and the plus minus after the game and you're like okay that makes sense he's a plus player like every time he's on the court i like i we don't really understand it yet we're not 100 percent certain why he has such a positive impact on the game but it's clear he has a positive impact and should play more and then he got inserted in the starting lineup right before he got injured and i i just think he's gonna be one of those dudes who just always has a positive impact on his team and just he'll be a part of those five-man lineups that just for whatever reason always have a good net rating per 100 possessions i just think that's what he's destined for not a star but really good player that uh coaches and players around the league appreciate of like no 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 this dude's really good yeah no i i can see that the draymond green comparisons wouldn't really make any sense to me i could i keep seeing like imagine if deandre jordan was more switchable and and had like a handle on the offensive end and that kind of feels like what Collins' ceiling could be for the Hawks. It's just very, and that might be just because their gates are so similar when you watch them on defense or even offense. So maybe I'm just not able to look past that. But Collins is going to have a more expansive, uh, more expansive, excuse me, offensive game. I would think once he's fully polished, and I, I think he'll be just slightly more switchable on on the defensive end than DeAndre Jordan is at his peak. So he's just he's super fun to watch, and I think if you know Bud Knowles is. 
I know that if we move three years down the line, I don't know that he's the coach of this team. I would I would say no. But when looking at Vogel's situation or even Rivers in Los Angeles, I think that Bud Knowles is probably a touch safer than them or even Jason Kidd in Milwaukee or Steve Clifford in Charlotte. And that's kind of mm-hmm. like the overarching topic is if you look at the East, how many jobs are going to roll because of the chase for that like eighth seed? When you just look at a bunch of these like fringe playoff teams, if the Bucks for some reason, they'll probably make it. But if they're going to be the sixth seed after they went through all these hoops, is Jason Kidd really going to be safe because he's kind of buddy buddy with co-owner Mark Lazare? Um, Steve Clifford, I still think he's a fantastic coach, but the Hornets don't really have any cap flexibility. They don't have great trade assets unless they want to stage a teardown. Do you just make a change there for the sake of making a change, particularly if you're still on pace to miss on pace to miss the playoffs? That that's going to be fascinating. I think a lot of jobs are going to roll, but for some reason, I just I'm not sold on the idea that Buttonholzer won't be in Atlanta next season. Moving beyond, I get it, but for I just I don't know. I, I like have trouble pegging it as of now. The only dudes in the bottom end of the East that I would say are completely safe are Fred Hoiberg, Kenny Atkinson, and Eric Spilestra. I think that's it. It's interesting that you say Hoiberg because I was talking about this the other day and I could just see like the Bulls gave him the league's worst roster and mm-hmm. they have the worst record in the league. So he's not, you know, he's not missing expectations. And if anything, you look at Laurie Markinen, even Denzel Valentin, they've they've both shown kind of some good signs this season on the offensive Love end. Denzel. Yeah. I'm, so I'm glad he's finally getting run. I, I'm not leaving. I'm not selling my Denzel stock. I, I refuse. That's hey, if he's going to shoot 40 plus percent from three, there's going to be a spot for he's him gonna do that for but, the next 10 years. I but, just I don't think he's going anywhere. <laughs> but could you also see just knowing Gar Foreman and John Paxson that they would just maybe probably not midseason, but after this year, they kind of just fire Horberg to preserve their own job security. They go to ownership and Didn't say sign an extension. I feel like this offseason, they just the front office just got an extension. Right, but I mean, they've just been so bad for so long, and now if you replace the coach, maybe it's not even this summer, but the following one, and you're like, well, you know, you can't really grade us now because we need to give this this rebuild with a new head coach some time to really marinate. They seem like they should have been operating on thin ice for so long, and yet they just continue to get this borrowed time, and I can see them getting rid of Hoiberg at some point, definitely not this season, but maybe over the summer or during next season just to sort of advance their own job security because I don't know how long you can stand for some of the moves that they've made that Jimmy Butler trade in particular was just one of the worst superstar deals we've seen in recent memory. We'll get to Jimmy Butler in just a second, actually, because we're going to talk about the Timberwolves and the thunder and some, a game that I watched a couple nights ago between the two of them, but uh, something I noticed watching that game, but in regards to the bulls, I just think Hoiberg is so buddy, buddy with that front office, kind of like what Kerr is with uh, Bob Byers and Golden State. I just, I think it's a lot stronger than a lot of other front offices and that friendship is just, it seems like it's been around for years and years, not even just when he got the job, that that goes back a ways with the with that just duo and dynamic. I just, I think it would be really hard to move on from him now, especially like them electing to finally tear down the roster, which is something they should have done a couple of years ago. Or if you first moved on from Tibbs to go to Hoiberg, any young coach, you should have gone the other way where you blow it up right at that moment and go through a full rebuild. But then again, I want to pose this question to you. Who is the more stereotypical associate head coach promoted to head coach for the rest of the season? Jay Triano or Jim Boylan, who is the assistant coach and was brought in as like the associate head coach to help Hoiberg transition from Iowa State to Chicago. 
I could see it. He has second half of the year head coach written all over him. He's got that Jay Triano thing where it's just like he's always going to be the associate head coach, the assistant, and then get this like little bit of jump because the Suns have been a lot better with Triano. The Bulls have probably had this weird second half jump if they fired Hoiberg and promoted Boylan, who I believe came from San Antonio in his last stop. But yeah, I, that's that's where I'm at with those two. So who actually qualifies more as the uh, most uh, stereotypical uh, associate head coach promoted to temporary head coach or interim head coach? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess you kind of – Boylan seems like that's a very like interesting slant on it, and I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I'm just more inclined to go with Jay Triano probably because of just the circumstances under which that Earl Watson was given the job in Phoenix. He was like an own interim head coach, and then the Suns inexplicably kind of didn't even – like stage this wide casting coaching search. So now you have an interim head coach that seems like he could have been in place, like you said, to for this exact situation. And, and now you're fine with him being a placeholder because I don't think you, you can't give the job to an interim head coach at this point because it suggests, even if it's not true, that you didn't hold a thorough enough search for it. So it just seems that maybe the Suns viewed him as this like really good placeholder and someone who's not going to maybe even leave the organization if he's not given the the full-time job or just someone who's going to be good uh, with the youngsters for now. I, I would go with him more than the intern, but it's probably easier to envision it because he is uh, the interim head coach at, at the moment. Okay, fair enough. All right, so we were actually messaging about this when we were thinking about things that we want to talk about on the pod today. I watched all of the Thunder Minnesota game from Friday night, I believe it was. And I took a lot away from that. I mean, the Thunder obviously are still a couple of games under 500 as we're recording this. They had a great win against Jeff, Joffrey Lobinway and friends and Deontay Murray playing like 40 minutes for the Spurs last night. So congrats to the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder for taking down one of the most depleted Spurs teams I've seen in uh, in a long time. It was even bad for the Spurs situation. Like I, I don't think Ginobili played, and I think he could have. I think he just got a DMP. Like we're not winning this game, so we're not even using Ginobili. So yeah, good for the Thunder to get that win under their belt. But I just I watched that game, and it's so interesting to me how those two teams operate because. You would think coming into this year, I guess maybe a little less for the Thunder, but they're so good defensively, and you watch it, and they make everything difficult, and you can see why they're good. And, I mean, Paul George is great. Steven Adams is great. Patterson, if he ever gets healthy, will be fine, and he was good in this game in a limited amount of time. But Andre Robertson's obviously awesome. Their offense just looks terrible to watch. It's ugly. It's a lot better, weirdly, when Raymond Felton's in the game. I enjoy watching them in the half court more at that point, but... Then the Wolves with Tibbs, you would think they would have this defensive identity. But their offense is so good, and they just have so many different ways that they can score. And Towns is still just so talented inside in the way he can just explode to the rim. He's just, he's great. And Wiggins is still really confident. He takes like 19 uh, long twos a game, and they all seemingly go in. It's not the most efficient way, but you look at them, and their five man unit of Teague, Wiggins, Butler towns and gibson's really good it's fine but guess what that bench outside of bedalico who i still haven't figured out how to pronounce his last name who's been really good for them he's missed time 
that bench is a dumpster fire. Tibbs is playing like three guys off the bench right now. So Jimmy's playing 40 minutes. Towns is playing 40 minutes. It's it's classic Tibbs, but their defense is still just terrible, and you watch it, and I, I think a lot of it's Wiggins. I think a lot of it is Towns, but it's just even Gibson, who's been so good for them, and Butler, who's a great defender, it isn't doing enough, and I, I just... I think it all falls on their two young stars. And I just, I think it's so interesting that the biggest problem with the Wolves and Tibbs is their defense. And the biggest problem with the team with Westbrook, Mel, and Paul George is their offense. I just, it's such an interesting dichotomy to me that I I can't believe is actually happening. And watching it between these two teams, I thought was really fascinating Friday night. Yeah, I, I don't, It's it's really tough to kind of just, understand i don't even and for the timberwolves like it's tough for even for me to believe in their their offense at times just because they don't play particularly fast they have one of the worst shot profiles in the league uh it was when i was looking last night 56.6 percent of their shots come at the rim or from Mm. the three-point line that's the second lowest in the league in front of only the sacramento kings so which is weird because i think they're like number two in free throw attempts a game maybe number one I think they're getting to the line the most as a team. I'm pretty certain. Jimmy Butler is like getting to the line like five or six times a night. And I think, I mean, I, I, I want to look this up, but as we're um, talking, yeah, I think that's the weird thing because they definitely get to the line all the time. Yeah, third best free throw rate uh, okay. right now. And D- Butler, like you said, is a big part of that. I, but I've also been interested in how much it seems like Butler's taken on this deferential role. I was kind of wondering, oh, what's going to happen to Towns' usage with Teague and Wiggins and Butler in the same rotation uh, and, and even with Wiggins a little bit but it's ended up that Butler's kind of made a majority of the sacrifice it seems like he's passing more he's he's really driving which is good you want him to get to the free throw line but you also uh, want him to, to probably take more than three three-point attempts per game and that's a big issue with the yeah, that'd be nice. Wolves in general but I mean they, they yeah they have the fifth best offense up in terms of points per 100 possessions in the league right now so I can kind of bemoan their shot profile, but it's working at this point. And they do have a lot of guys that maybe it can work for. I mean, like you said, Wiggins, he goes on these stretches where it seems like he doesn't miss from inside the arc. Um, Taj Gibson even a little bit too. And he's been better than I expected. I hated that. Taj has been so good on defense. I think the signing's still going to look bad in a couple years, but this year alone, I think just imagine that team without him anchoring that defense because he really is the guy who just is having to do everything i think to keep that five-man unit defense even passable for stretches during their games right i think he works so hard there and if you watch him i mean they're lucky because like it's two years and 28 million i i hated the deal but he's it's like you said he's probably been their most valuable defender even uh, when you watch butler and him though it seems that so many things are going wrong on the defensive end that there are times where both of them don't even know how to react and it's a little bit harder for butler because he's asked to cover more ground and i think that impacts the timberwolves defense performance a ton and you even talked about how they just don't have these defensive presences off the bench and like tom thibodeau doesn't really want to use them and yet at the same time their third uh, most used lineup is an all bench unit that vomits <laughs> 113 plus point points per 100 possessions which by far and away beat that one have Mohammed because he is now getting dmp coaches decisions right and it had belicia who's also been injured yeah. I, like you know they've made 15 appearances and it, it's just that he's gone with these other bench heavy lineups too like i don't know what possessed him at for a good part this was before Mohammed was getting dmps there were basically these towns plus bench lineups and they were mm. 
one of them was working and like the defensive rating was actually good. But I was like, is that the guy you want to stagger? Is it Towns that you're really going to lead with the bench? Uh, they tried even some Wiggins plush bench units that worked. And maybe if you maybe that's like the solution, you have to stagger those two as opposed to looking to stagger elsewhere. I, I honestly don't know. It's tough to kind of pin down his, his rotations. I'm shocked at how bad they are defensively at the same time. I think when you watch them and seeing how I don't even know what the word is because I don't want to call Carl Anthony Towns lazy, but he's basically usurped Andrew Wiggins as the team's worst defender. And I'm not sure if mm-hmm. Butler just makes uh, Wiggins look a little bit better. Now, that's not a progression that anyone really saw coming because last year it seems like he was trying to make the right reads and there just wasn't enough help or smart defenders around him. Now he has those smart defenders and he's just like he just doesn't look like he knows what he's doing at certain points. And I'm not sure that's a devolution that anyone could have predicted. Remember when we were having the conversations as to whether or not you would take Carl Anthony Towns or Anthony Davis for the next five years, and Towns was getting a lot of love in that department? Wasn't it? And remember when it was tweeted? I was by Coach Thorpe, uh, formerly VSPN, David Thorpe. I, he's a great basketball mind, but he said he saw enough. It was after like 10 games or something to know that Carl Anthony Towns has more upside than Anthony Davis. And to think that that's where we were when Towns was a rookie to let's jump ahead to the middle of his third season. And now that statement looks just completely blasphemous. Anthony Davis, it's just, it's becoming a broken record at this point, but I believe he is number one in real plus minus for power forwards this year. He's going into the right radar. A lot of people love what Boogie's doing at the five for them. And it seems like he's getting all the attention in new Orleans, but Anthony Davis quietly, one of the best bigs again in the league, and he's going to be fine. It's just, he's so good, and it just, somehow he goes under the radar, and he's just, so many people, so many basketball fans are just missing Anthony Davis just be awesome two to three nights a week because no one's ever watching the Pelicans, and it's just, it's sad because he's awesome, and I don't, I mean, it's still really early. It's still year three for Towns, but I watch Anthony Davis, and I just, I don't see a scenario where Towns gets to davis's level or uh potential i think davis is already there and davis is just once he makes that move kind of like what kevin garnett did later in his career to the right team it's just we're all gonna be like why do we not regard this dude as a top five player i i just don't i think we've forgotten too much about him all over again and we go through this process i think once a year maybe once or twice a year yeah i completely agree with you town it's just we don't see it with towns defensively and you're kind of overloading to look at when he's a rookie even last season like i said it looked like he was kind of just trying and didn't want to blow his own assignments and when teammates blow their assignments he wasn't coming off as a good team defender when really he was just being over cautious but it's not there on the defensive end anthony davis has made demarcus cousins basically a better defender because he looks like there are yeah. still these stints where cousins just doesn't try but he's a much better rim protector and that's in large part because anthony davis can just run around and do all the dirty work elsewhere um like and he if, does the dirty work he works right. really hard on both ends and it's just you don't have a lot of bigs who can just do what anthony davis does and man i think they're gonna make the playoffs which is nice so that would be a good thing just to get him back in the playoffs but I, I just think we look at KP and guys like that and we just we miss the obvious amazing superstar in New Orleans. And it's not DeMarcus Cousins, who's been good, but it's still Davis and Davis is still just really awesome. And he's shooting threes again. It's just like it was like he took the year off last year. And now he's just at 36 percent, which if you're going to get close to the league average from his position and what he does, 
Like, that's just absolutely absurd. To be fair, the Pelicans took last year off. That's fair. Mm-hmm. The front office Another has taken, interesting... like, the last half decade off, right? <laughs> do, I, you know what, man? Okay, so this is, I got to be careful here, because I do love Pelicans Twitter, and there's a lot of, like, I love, I read Bourbon Street Charts and all that. I, I love the Pelicans bloggers, and I love uh, just their analysis. I think they're really good, and I like the fans. I will say, as a recording, that my first thought when I saw that the new Seattle arena is coming in 2020 and they're getting an NHL team, my first thought was, wow, can't wait to get DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis in Seattle. <laughs> that was my first thought. I just, there's this new thing where people don't realize that New Orleans is the smallest market in the NBA. I think a lot of people don't realize how small of a television market New Orleans actually is. And I've never been to Smoothie King Arena, but from what I understand, it's not the best. And I think Mickey Loomis is still involved with that team, the Saints guy. So a lot of things that I just, it's a tough sell for me to not move them to Seattle. Love those guys. Mason Ginsburg, all them great bloggers, great writers. I don't want you to lose your team, but I would right. love to see Anthony Davis in Seattle. Mason Ginsburg's fantastic. They're like, the and with Memphis, it's like the inverse. Memphis has some really good writers, but you really feel they have to be like probably the, what, the second smallest market they in the, the NBA? Smallest. So I, their fan base is fantastic, but that would be another team, especially with the whole thing going on with ownership. Nashville. I, I'm going to get in so much trouble. I would have <laughs> just moved into Nashville a long time ago. Like when Vancouver, they're moving out of Vancouver, which understandable. Vancouver is a tough market to work in the NBA, especially with Seattle being there at the time but and Portland. But Nashville, it's big. Like look at the Predators. Like the way that turnout happened. You could have shared an arena with them and I think – there would just be more interest in a bigger fan base and things like that. But you know what? Memphis is awesome. And and like you said, there's so many great Memphis writers, Josh Coleman, all those guys. So I, I don't want any of these people to lose their team, but at the same time. Expansion would be the preference, but Seattle no, deserves No, I don't want team. expansion. We Why? don't need more. No, there's too many bad. No, I don't want expansion. I don't want more of these teams without a superstar, like even like without a solid B plus player. I don't want more Pacers in this league. And we're going to talk about the pace at the end, but I don't want more of that. I don't want more. Dispersion. It would just, it seems, well, then it would just make more sense because you have more than teams, half the teams making the playoffs right now. It's so like, let's get up to 32 and make it an even 50, make the, make the postseason. And um, it would be harder ostensibly for these, you know, super teams or these, even worse, the botched super teams. When you look at how those all in place just sort of backfire. And, okay. The Thunder still have more time. Let's not go. <laughs> But I'm just saying, look at how many years the Nets were set back. And like, it would be harder to do something like that uh, if you have more teams. But I just think I want Seattle to have a team in general. And it, you, don't, you don't like pulling one out of a particular market. I, I do think it's like you said, New Orleans is the smallest market. And it seems like they could be when you look at like the fan base. I think I know there's a lot of questions whether the Memphis fan, fan base would support a bad team. But I don't even think it's a question when comparing it to New Orleans is which team would suffer more from like this years long malaise and I, I do believe that again talking in terms of just pure fan support i think it would be new orleans by far yeah i want to th- pose something to you because a lot of nets in this podcast and i don't know why they just uh, just that you bring up the nets again so i was thinking the other day of like when i was thinking about the trade and uh, i was thinking i was just doing something with the brooklyn pick and the Cavs, and just you know looking at possibilities and everything but i was thinking of like if everything had gone right with the Nets trade, and this will be brief. I'm not going to go back down and go all James Harden trade uh, analysis at this point. But I will say, the first thing I thought about with that trade is like, 
Billy King was hoping that that trade would be four years of the first four seasons at Dexter, where that was my first thought. I was like, best case scenario was like, you know, Dexter after the Trinity killer season, I, I, I was out. Like it was awful. I tried to start season five. It was not good. And then it just got universally panned and it had this horrible ending and just, it, it had left a bad taste in your mouth because the first four seasons were so good and it was so interesting. And season four was the best yet. And that could have been um, a finals appearance for the Nets, which they've done several times in the last 20 years. And would it have been worth doing what they did, giving up so many picks and just destroying their franchise for uh, close to a decade if they could have gotten to the finals just once and just had that, given the fans four years of just really good playoff basketball and everything like that, would it have been worth it for four really great years where you'll remember the team and that group forever to also take that on knowing that you're in for a decade of just horrible rebuilding where you're trading for the Allen Crabs of the world and Joe Harris is getting heavy rotation minutes. Do you do that? I will tolerate no Joe Harris, Lander. <laughs> um, okay. I think you I think you still you probably do it, especially given the situation that they were in. They were trying to break into the Brooklyn market essentially when you have the Knicks there which is just super tough. And if you knew if, I mean, especially what you know now, because it backfired anyway, after didn't even really make it through the whole season. But if you could have gotten four really just highly competitive years out of that deal, I I think they would still make it again in a heartbeat. It's easy. It's just, I'm so hesitant to comment on it anymore because it's, I'll, I'll always be tongue in cheek about it, but it's just so easy to sit back and be like, yeah, wow, that was dumb. All these years later, when that deal was trumpeted by, so many at the time. And if it was made in this kind of NBA climate where I think fans and media and just everybody is more nuanced when looking at draft pick commitments and like title windows, it would be easier to criticize. But again, just looking back in the moment at how many people were okay with it or even supporting it, like that team made the cover of Sports Illustrated before the season. So it's it's just such a wonky time in history to look back on. But I do think, like you said, if you could have guaranteed them four years, one of which were in the NBA finals, then they have to uh, slog through whatever they're already slogging through i i think they would make that deal again in a heartbeat okay well i think we're on the same page then next up a team that you mentioned it's a team that i think is about to go through a very painful rebuild it's a team in los angeles and it's not the lakers it's the clippers they need it just he hired deandre jordan hired an agent today for the first time in two years which uh, woke up Woj to uh, assert that a trade might be on the way because it's it's interesting timing that uh, after a rash of injuries to the Clippers and a situation where Sundarius Thornwell is playing meaningful minutes for the team and Wes Johnson's going like one for 13 from the field that maybe it's time to change course. And, you know, DeAndre Jordan's an interesting piece at this point. And there's been a lot of talk about what the value of a center is in today's NBA and what can you really realistically get for DeAndre Jordan at this point in his career and knowing his contract situation and knowing how much money he can earn next summer and everything along those lines. It's There's a lot of moving parts here. And it's an interesting case because I don't know who the right team like for DeAndre Jordan is. I think the Clippers should definitely move on from him and definitely look to trade him. So here are my top three, and I'm interested to hear who you think um, belong here. And my top three 
and this is in order. Number one, the Wizards. I think there's just something they need to... Like, Gortat's just... I think he's transitioning to a backup role where he's just better suited at this stage in his career to play like 12 to 20 minutes a night. And the year, the days of him and Wall just destroying people on the pick and roll is just... I think we're nearing the end of that. And I think they just need some kind of shakeup because they're 12 and 10. They're at the seven seed. They're just... I understand that Wall's been out, which has definitely hurt things, but they should not be fighting for a playoff spot at this point in December. I just think there's too much talent there. Beal has just gotten to become too good of a player. Otto Porter is like a borderline all-star. I don't know if that team could beat the Cavs, the Celtics in a seven-game series in the Eastern Conference Finals, but I do know a five-man unit, and the Wizards, as we know from last year, are all about really good five-man starting units. If you threw out DeAndre... Otto Porter, Keith, Bradley Beal, and John Wall in your closing five, that's a really, really painful, tough out. And that's something that I don't think anybody wants to play come playoff time. There, I was actually surprised they were mentioned. Like, and they've even okay. been just officially mentioned in the rumors. I, I don't think he'd be a bad fit. It's just, I mean, all of a sudden you trade for DeAndre Jordan, and then even if he doesn't opt out, you what do you have? You just have 40-something, like you have close to $40 million wrapped up in him and Jan Mahimi, not to mention a maxed-out Wall, Porter, and Bradley Beal. It's just so tough for me to wrap my head around, I guess, that I can't even picture it. And what is the, the package I guess you're giving up is something that's Gortat, Smith, and, and Oubre. Like, yeah, I don't even know if you'd have to go Oubre, because I don't. it depends on what you think he's worth, and I don't. I'm just not sure he's going to bring in that much. I just no, he, he like shouldn't. I mean, yeah. the Bucks were seeking. I think per Jerry Wolfell of the Racing Journal Times said that uh, the Clippers wanted two, at least two of Malcolm Brogdon, Middleton, and John Henson, and oh, it's like no, they'd it's be not. lucky to get even one <laughs> yeah. of Brogdon, like or Middleton. It just it's not happening. He's going to turn 30 in July. Is essentially on an expiring contract. If you think he's going to opt out, um, I, I wonder if he even moves the defensive needle for you enough at this point. The, the Wizards haven't even been that bad on defense this year, I don't think. They were like t- top 12 in points allowed yeah. for 100 possessions. Um, they've definitely they've fallen off a little bit over the last 10 games or so, but that coincides with, like you talked about, Wall's injury. I don't. If you don't have to give up, I guess, anything of value for him, but you do have to look at the long-term commitment aspect of it. And if you have to re-sign him, and you, again, you have three max players on your roster. DeAndre isn't a max player, but... If you're going to pay him like near max money, you're entering territory where you have to be a threat to the Cavaliers at that point. And I, I still don't think they would be. How are they supposed to fill out the bench ever with those salaries? Well, you need to give up on that. The bench is yeah. not happening. The bench days of or the days of Washington ever being able to put together a competent bench are, are gone. And also, the majority of these good teams in the NBA have absolute shit benches. Like Minnesota is going to win 50 games with an absolutely atrocious bench. OKC has an atrocious bench, which by the way, another thing just to put a bow on that uh, Thunder Timberwolves conversation. I thought it was funny that I was watching Tyus Jones and Raymond Felton in my notes. I was like, it's really weird that these two guys are in very different points of their career, but they're maybe my two favorite backup point guards in the NBA. They're so confident. (laughs) Tyus Jones has been great for Minnesota this year. And Raymond Felton, is the glue that keeps that bench for the Thunder going. Like, it's so bizarre. Raymond Felton's like 63 years old, and Tyus Jones still looks 20. I, I just, I think it's interesting that they, both of those two teams have just a solid, perfect 
backup point guards. I, I that's another just weird nugget that I thought about as well as I was watching this game. Yeah, um, I think it helps too for each of them that you've kind of seen those. If you put like bench heavy units with you know for Felton, if it's Mello or if it's Paul George against other second units, or if it's Carl Anthony Towns or Wiggins plus a bunch of bench players against mostly opposing second stringers it probably makes the game a lot easier for everyone i've personally been i was too i was pointed out to me by Haley o'shaughnessy of the ringer leading into the season that i was too low on tyus jones and it turns out she was absolutely right uh raymond felton has been a revelation to watch since last year when he was with the clip should have seen it coming like the mellow emergence he and mellow just have a connection going back to new york it's just put those <laughs> two together that there's just something magical about the raymond felton maybe they just need to that's the trick i just realized it's adding mike woodson to be one of their assistant coaches that's what they're missing uh less mo cheeks more mike woodson on the sidelines and that will get the thunder back on track this season yeah i think i think they just need to go more iso mm, yeah i think that that would be great it's that's the late game adjustment that this team needs to make is more ISO and things like that. It's Number even two. like, oh, yeah, I, I'm not even, but just that final note on that. It's it's, they go to ISO so much. And even when you look at the numbers, it's just staggering just because mellow George and Westbrook have combined for more isolation possessions than all but three NBA teams. And like, that's just, I lied. I have another bow that I want to put this before. <laughs> We're putting all kinds of bows in this conversation, but I thorough gift wrapping. Yes, very thorough. Hey, it's it's topical. We're in Christmas season. I think Jimmy Butler is clearly the best player in the Wolves, and I think they've kind of figured that out at this point, that this team should revolve around Jimmy. And I think Paul George is the best player in the Thunder. I absolutely concur. Um, okay. I thought one of my predictions that looks probably terrible at this point, I mean, it's looked over the past few games. I mean, I think Melo's taken under 10 shots in each of the past two games, which is the first time in his career good. that's mm-hmm. ever happened. Is it sustainable? I would hazard hell no, just because imagine asking Carmelo Anthony to take 10 shots a game. Like if they were all threes and they were all going in, maybe, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, Paul George is interesting because if the Thunder aren't kind of out of this, and I know they've won their past two games, but they almost blew a lead against the Spurs' C squad. And I, that Timberwolves generous, game, I think it was more of like the E minus. Right. And I mean, that game against the Timberwolves, like that wasn't that was hardly like a great crunch time performance. It seems like they were they evaded disaster in that one. And yeah. it's it's not even their crunch time record. I, I looked before they're three and three when they're not trailing in crunch time. So they have the mm-hmm. leader. It's tied and they're just a coin toss and it shouldn't be with that much talent. It wouldn't surprise me to see Paul George kind of be on the trade market if they're not i'm not even talking just above 500 they have to look like they're a real threat in the west which they i know they've been sensational in a lot of their victories but they don't look like they're there yet and i think if you're the thunder while paul george is probably your most talented player westbrook's under contract i don't know that Melo's going to walk away from all that money next year because he, he won't even get half that on the open market annually do you see if the Cavaliers are willing to give up filler with the Nets pick for Paul George at that point? I think you you might have to. So I, I think December is going to be a, a really important and interesting month for them. But I the Butler thing with the Wolves, I don't think that's surprising. I think we looked at that before the season, and the fact that they're discovering it uh, isn't too shocking. But the George thing, and my prediction this long roundabout way, was that he would get more MVP votes than Russell Westbrook, and the Thunder just weren't using him properly for that to even look like kind of like an okay prediction. 
I don't. I, I'm interested to see. Do you get him? How are they going to adjust for the month of December? Where will they be at come January? Maybe even entering February. And it's like you said. I do think he's probably the best player on the team, but he might also be the least retainable. I I honestly have no idea what to think of this Thunder team and where they're going to be two months from now. I'm still pretty positive, just because their defense is still really good. That I'm working on something. I don't know if I'll ever. I don't know. I'm diving into something where I just, I really do feel like the, one of the biggest inhibitors of the thunder is just never finding that secondary ball handler or playmaker next to Westbrook. Like if campaign their first round pick their lottery pick from a couple of years ago had been able to even be like 70%, 65% of what Harden was next to Westbrook, it would have been so beneficial, especially in crunch time, just having another guy like a Manu type who just, can facilitate and help the offense from not getting stagnant late in games. And I just, I don't think they ever found that right guy. Jeremy Lamb's obviously not that. And I don't think they ever found like the right two guard to play in crunch time next to Westbrook. And I do think that campaign is just one of those biggest, uh, what ifs, what if he was not actually terrible and an NBA player and they didn't miss as bad as they did on that. I actually liked him as a rookie too. Maybe if he doesn't get injured, things pan out differently, but the thunder like, notorious they probably would have traded him now just because he'd be nearing that where like he playing next to westbrook and those two kind of him being like a much better version of what raymond felton is next to westbrook and stuff like that where it just the offense doesn't just fall off a cliff and go super iso heavy in crunch time just having someone like that in the backcourt with russ to help um find steven adams inside find paul george in the corner find mellow on a pick and pop like things like that that Westbrook necessarily may not do. I I just I'll always wonder about the campaign stuff. It's it's either that or I and this isn't an original thought because I was actually high on the Thunder entering this year, but maybe just did the Thunder go one starry player too many? Like if it was just Paul mm. George, is this team any different? Because then you don't have to worry about striking all this offensive like balance. Yeah. So you have Chris Paul and James Harden, but everyone else is used to just like, hey, we'll do whatever. On the offensive Can you imagine if Melo was playing at the four for them and not Ryan Anderson and Luke Richard at this point? Uh, I could not. I don't. Luke I mean, Richard, Mamute, and Ryan Anderson have been like I think they're both in the top twenty in real plus minus. At, I I couldn't believe right that uh, Luke went at the minimum. He was like, I mean, I misread the market like terribly. I don't. I probably even shouldn't admit at how bad I was at reading the market, but I thought he was going to get like maybe mid level money because he was just. Mm. He was shooting. He's doing it now. He's shooting threes, putting the ball on the floor. And he's just so versatile he's defensively. And you then to watch the Rockets to realize what he does, but he's good. And Ryan Anderson too, like you said, it's. I think it was, and this was as of last week. I haven't looked at it then, but he was targeted more in isolation than anybody else on defense, and his numbers were were like good. Like like the yeah, if you, he's offense. not been bad defensively. He no. really that's all they're looking for from him just don't be terrible don't be terrible and i love that his like average shot distance is just going to be 30 feet by next season (laughs) yeah uh to wrap up the dj stuff though i the i want to throw the last two teams at you that i just when i was just dancing around like so many teams just don't need someone like him but deandre jordan in portland in a trade for nurkic evan turner and noah vonley I would actually really like to see DeAndre Jordan in Portland. I don't. I wonder why. I guess how many picks are the Clippers getting that they're going to take on Turner, who might actually help them. I'm, I'm still an Evan Turner like believer, not at seventy million, obviously, mm-hmm. but and also Vonley is going to be 
a free agent this summer, so you automatically have to reinvest. But I, I think in terms of just fit with Portland, that would be like it'd be basically combining some of the better defensive elements, uh, defensive elements of Nurkic and Ed Davis, and like putting them into Jordan. Nurkic is obviously the better passer and raw scorer, but uh, I that, love Ed Davis. Yeah, but that's like Ed Davis and Darrell Arthur are like my two dudes in the post that I'll never move on from. That I actually think are really good and just never got then got enough opportunity to be appreciated for being like the best third bigs on a lot of good teams. Hey, at least Darrell Arthur got paid a little bit. He sure. got he has like no. a negative per to start the season, by the way, in Denver because so. the Nuggets barely last year he was okay, but the Nuggets have a jillion forwards. So if Darrell Arthur went to San Antonio, I just. I think he would be so good. I think he would be like the David West thing at this point where it just he goes in for 12 minutes and just kills people and just plays really hard defense and rebounds at a high rate and just it's really good. I just I don't think it's going to happen. We need like an ultimate litmus test for San Antonio's system. Like they, mm. they, they need to end up with Julio Okafor and see if they can turn him into an all-star is, is pretty much it. Mm, that would be interesting. Uh, that's kind of died down the Okafor stuff where it seemed like it ramped up a little bit and then it's just back to no real buyout talks and everything else. I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but the, uh, I like the Celtics fit. I, I do. I think that would just be, that'd be fine. The Celtics but, uh, are so, so, I mean, I guess they'll, they'll probably be a buyout if he's not traded. I get at this point, they're really only hurting him, which seems unfair, but I get that, you know, his salary is not insubstantial. So you could pair him with Amir Johnson and maybe take back a nice player at the trade yeah. deadline. Um, I don't know. Celtics are bizarre. Amir Johnson, he's been really bad for. Well, you can maybe if they're like not bent on having the best cap flexibility this summer because it's basically LeBron or bust for them. And as I mean, basketball wise, LeBron would be good, but I don't think he's going to Philly. So if you Mm -hmm. kind of move on from that and leak into 2019, you could take back some unwanted money. Like, are the Mavericks really going to turn down Wes Matthews for Okafor and Amir Johnson? I'd absolutely not. So you get this year and next year of Wes Matthews, who's a nice kind of. 3 and D wing, he's still, the Mavericks run him through the ringer and play him a bunch, even though he has an Achilles history, and he's probably 10 times better off the bench for the Sixers, so maybe it's just something like that, but uh, my point on the Celtics was they're so interesting because, yes, I think they'd be a good fit, but it's like, who do you trade on that team? Jason Tatum is their fourth highest paid player. Like, it's, they don't have just salary matching anymore. It's Uh, true. It's like, they're going to have to sign someone this year to like like Marcus Smart, they're gonna have to overpay him just so they have like a viable trade chip when they want to go out and make a move. They have all these assets, but you have to combine too many of them to get anyone of consequence. That's a random but fascinating note. Yeah, that's gonna be interesting. I mean, the Sixers will be in the same kind of situation in a couple of years. They have a lot of dudes, and they have a lot of guys who I think could all be really good players, and they're gonna have to pay a lot of people. Like if you look up and down that roster, there's really not anyone that you just don't like. It's the same situation in Boston where you just like all these guys, but you can't keep everybody. Right. So should be interesting. Last team, and we don't have to spend very long in this team that I, I thought was interesting and that you can never really rule out was Phoenix. Oh, can you justify Tyson that? Chandler lives in LA. I, I know his house. I think it's in Calabasas. I'm not sure if he still lives there, but he did live there at some point. Send him back to LA to just do a retirement tour kind of like Andrew Bogut's doing for the Lakers, just right out in the sunset in a nice nice tropical area. And then uh, maybe, I'm still not convinced Bender and Chris can both be there long-term in Phoenix. I don't know if you can build around those two as your four and five of the future. And if you can't, and if Ryan McDonough 
decides that this is just not going to work long term between the two of them and one of them's got to go. I, I do wonder if you could get DJ and then just pair him with like, I think him and Chris would be really fun. It'd be like a Lob City-esque kind of situation where both those two guys are just really athletic and really great dunkers, but we'll have to see about the shooting uh, issues with the two of them playing the four and five. But if you could get Bender, that might be the best deal for the Clippers for DJ is taking away one of the Suns really intriguing young pieces. Yeah, that's I didn't even think about that. I'd be on board for uh, definitely the Clippers. I mean, if you're, you're going to get Bender and I'm, you're getting Tyson Chandler, who two years on his deal left after this one, and he does, he replaces some of what Jordan does, not at the level that he does, but he's going to be cheaper than DeAndre over the next two seasons, most likely. So I could be on board with it for them. Phoenix would just be interesting. Uh, I, I don't think you could necessarily say they would balk at it. They don't, they probably don't want Chandler's money on the table at this point. And it's like you said, they are kind of still crowded up front. They have Alvin Williams, who a lot of people forget about. He's pretty good. Alex Len has been an okay rim protector this year as well. So I could see them maybe giving up Bender. The, the one obstacle I would probably have a tough time getting around is are, are they just banking then that DeAndre is going to opt out and he'll accept like longer term money with a starkly less annual salary, something like mm-hmm. four years and, I don't know, 50 million uh, because I don't, you don't want to pay him that like too much when he's going to be 30, but you're the first person to mention that. And I actually, I actually like it not to sound so surprised that you would have a good idea. It's just, they, that kind of comes out of left. No, it's very surprising. (laughs) You should always be surprised. (laughs) I'm on board with it though. And and if I'm the Clippers and Bender is a part of it, that's I think you're absolutely right. That might be the best asset they would get in a single deal. Like this whole, you know, if the Bucks would be a perfect example, because I think they're a pretty good fit they're not giving up Brogdon or Middleton in my head. Like maybe you get DJ Wilson. Middleton so, just wouldn't make sense for the Clippers timeline either. I just don't I, know His deal is just so him. good. Like if you, you might be able to just like get better because their thinking might be, he doesn't add wins this year, but now all of a sudden you're going to move in. Let's say they end up with a top seven pick and you move into next year with a healthy Gallo, a healthy Blake. You have Chris Middleton in a contract year with a top prospect, maybe a healthy Beverly. That team mm-hmm. could be a little scary. But I mean, you're not getting a player like him, though, would be that's like yeah. the point. So it's going to be Bender. And I think that Bender is more he's been better under Jay Triano than he ever was under Earl Watson. But if he could be viewed as expendable in Phoenix, I, I'm really intrigued by that by that deal. There you go. Mission accomplished. Something that's not mission accomplished this year. It's uh, the Pacers winning the NBA title. I don't think we'll be able to say that. At the end, Donnie, the the ghost of Donnie Walsh won't be saying that. But, you know, they've been a fun story. I think they're like 12 and 11 right now. I'm not watching the Knicks Pacers right now, but they were winning at the time of recording. Victor Oladipo, 22.9 PER. He has like a 30% usage rate right now. It's like, I I, it, I don't think he had fun playing next to Westbrook last year, but it apparently does, he but learned yeah. a lot. And he learned how to handle a high usage rate for a middle of the road uh playoff team and you know he's um i think i'm just as fun of a version of him because he can actually shoot threes and he's he's doing a lot of stuff really well and he's just a guy who's super easy to root for and i really like and i remember saying this before the year on the over-unders with the pacers was if they just don't have a bad player in their rotation like they're very very average they're probably the most average team as a whole in the nba but they all work like the wizards really miss Bogdanovich. Like he was so good for them 
in the second half and he's shooting lights out. He's shooting like 50% of his shots, I think, are from three. But he's been great. That five-man unit to start games with um, Darren Collison, Victor Oladipo, uh, Thad Young, Bogdan, Bogdanovich, Bojan, Bogdan. I always get them mixed up now. There's two that are very similar. Is it Bojan? It's Bojan. Yes. I'm pretty sure it's Bojan. Yeah. And then um, Miles Turner, who hasn't even played that much this year. Like, he's been struggling with injuries. And then Sabonis playing a lot of five, and he's been great. Like, this is maybe my most outlandish comparison on the pod tonight. But when I watch Sabonis and the couple pace games I've been able to catch this year, do you know who he kind of reminds me of? I'm scared. Al Horford. Oh, my God. That's a he- that's a hell of a comparison. I just – you think he's there as like a – I guess I, I could see it as a passer, as but as a defensive switcher. I don't think he'll ever be as good. But the way he just – he's not super athletic. He's not super fast. He's – the arms are still really weird. But he's such a good passer, and he just – he's such an intelligent basketball player that, like, I just – I watch him play, and he's just such a good modern five. Like, I don't know – I don't think he'll ever get there. But it's kind of like what people, I think, see with Zach Collins when he got drafted in, ten, like, what, 10th overall or whatever to Portland, where I think a lot of teams are seeing – these fives of like i think they all want their own al horford like especially with what he's doing in boston it's like that's the modern five i think a lot of people want to go small like that but also have a guy who's just a really good passer and can move the ball and can roll really hard to the rim and it's just can spot up from threes and everything else like sabonis can shoot he has a good shot he i I don't know. I just watched him and that was one of the first things I saw, thought about this year when I was watching him play the five for the Pacers. It's like he kind of reminds me of young Al Horford. We better get the piece, people over at Wasserman Agency on the phone so that you could maybe be like a guy who helps him out when he gets to restricted free agency if you're going to drop those Al Horford comparisons. Can he be a poor man's Al Horford? Is that outlandish? I don't think so. I just have I think I'm too high on Al, Al Horford to just... Al Horford's great. Like, right, don't just, get me wrong. I love Al Horford, and I'm not trying to diminish what he does for the Celtics team because he's just a really, really awesome player. But it's just eh, just a little observation that I noticed when I was watching some Pacers. That's all it is. I, I could observation. see... Maybe we can go with like a mid-ends Al Horford on offense with a hobo's version of Al Horford on defense. I, I, I just... That. I don't go. see it defensively from him, I think, is the only thing. The offensive comparisons are really interesting, and I think you could probably make the case, mostly because it's true, that he's the better defensive rebounder. Um, but I just... I don't see... Like, just in terms of what Al Horford does defensively for the Celtics, I... I just don't see it, but I'm I, I'm also a Pacers pessimist. Like I just keep I'm still waiting and bracing for like the the trail off. They're on like Timberwolves territory in offense for me, where their shot profile is one of the mm-hmm. five worst in the league. And I'm just Victor Oladipo shooting 47.1 percent on pull up threes, and he's shooting 47.5 percent in ISO. I just don't. I mean, he's been fantastic, but I'm just waiting for this team to fall off a cliff. I would like for you to answer this quick question on Sabonis. As of right now, who is a better real plus minus among centers, Sabonis or Carl Anthony Towns? I mean, I'm just going to say Sabonis because that's it. Is Sabonis <laughs> sitting there at number 22, right above uh, Mark Gasol, right above Carl uh, Anthony Towns, Miles Turner, his teammate? You know, not great. He's not like the world beater, but in year two, his first and also like his first real year playing consistent minutes. I don't know. I like he wasn't. It. Watching him as a rookie, like he, he just wasn't bad. Like there, there were things that he needed to figure out, and I don't think 
there were like times where it seems like the where Westbrook's going for a triple double and he's the one who misses a jump shot that would get him that tenth assist or something. It just seemed like it wasn't the best fit for him. And I, this is probably worth a larger conversation about playing with Westbrook in general. But it's just such a you're so confined that you give a guy a little bit more breathing room and uh, Oladipo would be another example as well he was kind of leashed in Orlando toward the end because of playing with Alfred Payton they didn't really know what they wanted to do with that backcourt you had Evan Fournier too you had Vucevic who's who needs the ball in his hand as well so uh, just giving these guys a bit of daylight but particularly playing with Russell Westbrook I think it's really difficult unless you're just this straight spot-up shooter, which the bonus never was. I, I never thought he was a terrible rookie, even though the numbers didn't really show it. There was that, before Taj Gibson came along, Like there was that starting lineup with Sabonis in it that was, I think they were actually really good, and they were better with Gibson because he's like an offensive rebounding monster, but uh, he showed flashes with the Thunder, and maybe we shouldn't be surprised what he's done with the Pacers. He's he's like, he always seems to just have these... Machine. Seven like he's so good at offensive rebounding. He's shooting 45% from three to start the year. By right. The way. And it always seems, this is not factually correct, but it just always seems like he's seven of seven or something like ridiculous yeah. like that. Like, I'm he's just, just efficient. Gonna, like, this dude's yeah. going to be a really efficient big for like the next 15 years. Like, he's not going anywhere. Maybe that's what it's just efficient big. And I think Al Horford, who can pass and just see the game in high IQ, I just think Cody Zeller is kind of similar where it's he's not the shooter, obviously, but he's real plus minus loves him his on off numbers are great he was so good with Kimba last year i'm still very much a cody zeller person and these guys just fall in this category for me where i'm just like in the modern nba especially at the five like i really think these guys belong as starters um at the five and i just think they have real value zeller and sabonis are very different but i think they both have a positive on-court impact and uh i believe right now yeah sabonis is plus 1.2 points uh in the positive for the pacers uh, per 100 possessions to start the year so i don't know man i like it and he's also like it's interesting that economy with the positional change for him because he played 85 percent of his minutes at the four for okc last year and he's playing 85% of his minutes at the five this year in Indiana. Right, I, That's actually a good point. Put him in Steven Adams' role with the Thunder last year or mm. even this year, and he's probably exceptional. And that offense is probably better. Yeah. I mean, the Thunder, they were like prided upon cleaning up Russell Westbrook's and even Andre Roberson's misses last year, basically. They just wanted to be big and bruising up front. So that's that's another great point that you forget about. So what do you, when you watch the Pacers, what do you see? I, I've, I, I see a team that's just, I, I think you said it best and you said it tonight and you also said it when we were talking about the win over unders. They just don't have these terrible players and we're probably at the point where you have so many of them playing well. If you're going to talk about Darren Collison has been largely sensational. Corey Joseph oh, has been good. Now you're speaking my language. Like, as yeah. you know, I, I am a, a backup point guard aficionado as I made a point in this podcast to even bring up Tyus Jones and Raymond Felton. All you need to know about me as a basketball fan is I love a good second unit point guard. That uh, that's one of my that's my bread and butter. And Darren Collison, I've been on Darren Collison Island for years, and I just think he's just such a good backup point guard. He might be my favorite backup point guard in the NBA, but he's just so confident. He never falls off a cliff. He's just he's great. Like he is a really good backup point guard. And he's doing fine in the starting role. And he's playing next to Corey Joseph in that du- dual point guard lineup that they run out is a huge positive um, for them. In their, if you look at their five-man Corey unit, Joseph like is such a stud, too. They're just, they don't have a bad player. All yeah, their yeah. players are competent. 
And I think that's and what I really see. But it's like I don't know. They're they're uh their defense is like hard for me. I feel like they should be better on defense than they are, and yet I don't think they'll get there. Um so it's maybe they're I didn't peg them for the playoffs, I don't think at the head of the season. I don't think they're gonna get more than they would be the eighth seed right now. I don't think they're going to yeah. get higher than that. Maybe seven, but I mean, like, you just, we're waiting. You think that one of the Hornets or the Heat are going to get it together, and then there's really no one in front of them right now that they should surpass. Like, the Wizards have to get better. The Bucks have to get better. The Pistons and Sixers and Raptors are. Well, I, think they're all they are. I think the Pacers' only avenue, if you look at the standings right now, is an eight seed. And right. I think that's very realistic. And the other thing, like, I don't want to call him a guilty pleasure player because I think a lot of people know he's good. I, I'm like, I'm all Thaddeus Young too. Oh no, I'm not there. No, don't like it. He's nope. like, you. I think we criticize because he doesn't shoot threes at a high enough clip. But he's basically, with the exception of last year, and it wasn't even. But he's just like this long two aficionado that I just love because it's. I, I hate those shots, but he's shooting between 16 feet and the three point line, 44.8 percent this year, and which makes no sense because he shot like 38 percent from three last year. Yeah, he, he goes up threes? and down, but he was bad on long twos. But then the year before, he was bad on threes, but really good on long twos. So he, he doesn't got, get fouled ever. He doesn't really. He doesn't block shots. I don't really know what he does really. Well. He's not like a great passer. I think it's more. I was always be. annoyed. He's had. He was. He's been a pretty good. He, you know, he reminds me of. And now I'm gonna get killed for this. Oh no, Al Horford's former teammate, like a like a like a poor man's Paul Millsap. Like a, you go super. No, you know, I'll say poor man's okay. Paul Millsap. I could see that from him. I could live with that. I think part of the issue with Thad for me for years was like I always wanted him to be Lamar Odom and he was just never going to be Lamar Odom. I always want lefty uh, power forwards who can handle the ball to just turn into Lamar Odom because I miss watching guys like him play. And he's just not that. I don't He's a solid third pig. I just I don't like him in the starting role. I don't. He has to because, I mean, this is another thing we haven't talked about the the Pacers, but Caitlin Cooper at Indy Cornrows did this really good piece on the ish, potential issue with Miles Turner and Sabonis both playing the five, and how did what like what do the Pacers do there? Because you've got to play one of those guys thirty plus minutes a night, so someone's gonna have to sacrifice. You're gonna have to move one of them, and obviously, I don't think you want to move Turner, but uh, it's it's an interesting thing that they're gonna have to monitor down the stretch um this year and just next year because i mean turner's coming back and i, I don't know how they're going to balance this out I, I would assume they're going to play turner more at the four and shield him from injury and keep sabonis at the five but we'll have to see and i i don't know i i i'm very interested to see how they manage that issue and uh that i'm just i'm never going to get there man i'm sorry he's a negative this year for them by the way he is a minus one for them when he's on the floor I still see it. I don't know. I'm just there. I'm, I, I would be interested to see him play more center, too, in today's NBA. That might be interesting. Uh, yep. The Turner and Zabona's point's a good one, though. They're also going to be due for new contracts within a year of each other. It's going to be Turner's going to be extension eligible this summer, and then the following summer you have Zabonis. So they're going to be restricted free agents or extension eligible like one year apart. And even if you stagger their minutes to a T and you use – we can assume Al Jefferson's gone. We can probably even assume that – Young will be gone after this year, if not next season. You can use TJ Leaf as kind of this like in between buffer, like just playing, filling in the gaps. But you're not going to be able to carve out 30 minutes for both of them unless you play them together. And I don't, I don't even know how that would necessarily work. 
So I don't think either of them is uniquely fit to defend fours at this point. And then when do you construct the Lance Stevenson statue? <laughs> I mean, it should already be there, no? I don't... You do the statue, he's going to get a statue. And if he does get a statue, it's of him blowing in LeBron's ear, right? That or like he has these weird... I don't even know what you call it. Is it like a shimmy? Like he's just... Mm, I, I don't know. Yeah, you could do that. He's had a fun year. He's not good. He's still like he's the numbers aren't great for him. And he's probably like their worst rotation player, I think. I guess you could throw out TJ Lee for actually Damian Wilkins, who is thirty-eight years old, is getting minutes for this team from time to time. He's played seventy-seven minutes total, which is insane. Cause I thought Damian Wilkins got washed out of the league like ten years ago, but he's emerged <laughs> on this Pacers team because nothing makes sense anymore and the Pacers just survive, but like I, I just it's bizarre. I, I don't get it. It's to, to kind of consider like Lance Stevenson is not even, it feels like he's been around forever and he's still only, what is he, he's 27. Like he's not even, he's like kind of an old head on this team. He doesn't, he doesn't really play that much. He hasn't even played 500 minutes this year, but he's just, I don't know. You still get that when he's on the court and watching them, they just still seem to have that kind of extra pizzazz. I, I don't know what it is a little bit. And I don't even think it's like statistically rooted in anything. I'm just making that up basically. But, uh, it, like it's just it's still there so he absolutely does deserve a statue and i probably wouldn't do the lebron pose just because mm-hmm. then you have to put lebron in it unless it's going to be a photo op where he's blowing into no one's ear so then you can kind of stand in front of it and get that there nice you, you could pretend that you're the one lance stevenson is blowing in too um really quick though i did look up because i was curious at if the pacers had played zabonis and turner together a lot this year because i haven't mm-hmm. noticed it only 60 minutes in eight games and they can't score the defense has actually been good but it's yeah the offense has been absolutely atrocious so something to watch that's a it's a great issue that i didn't really think about until you brought it up that's tough i don't know what they do there i guess you have to do you think they made the right call i mean they didn't i don't you can't say they won the paul george trade but do you think- no, because losing a top 15 player always is a loss. Can we go ahead and move on from that? That was like part of the whole thing yeah. with the Bulls them is like you at least have a chance and you never know in free agency who could might who might want to play with Jimmy. It seems like Jimmy's really popular and players like Paul George too. Like you never know. I mean, free agents typically don't die at the opportunity to go to Indiana or Chicago, but <laughs> you're at least in it. You're in the conversation. I just, I think there's something to that. And I, it's so hard to get a top 15 player that losing him is always a loss. It's always a loss. Right. And I, when you do lose them, though, I kind of, I, it's so complicated in small markets because they can't float a terrible team like the Bulls are doing now or like yeah. the Knicks technically could. But like, I'm not a fan of this abridged rebuild because what is your ceiling with Victor Oladipo as your best player? You really need Zabonis and Turner and probably one of your upcoming late first rounders to burst. Like, two I of think those the hope would be like the Utah Jazz situation where you may just miss the playoffs or you make a trade to get into the late part of the lottery and then you find Donovan Mitchell. Like that the Jazz might their next five years might just be saved by Donovan Mitchell's emergence. Like he had forty one the other night. Like the post Hayward transition may not be as bad just because they lucked out in the lottery with Mitchell. So I think the same thing would have to happen with the Pacers for them to like have a interesting, intriguing five year Rebuild is getting a late lottery guy to just hit really hard, but those are really hard to hit on. <laughs> right. And I mean, that, they hit on it already. Paul George. But yeah. Never I, know, they could do it again. 
and now a lot of it's tethered to Ken Zabonis and Turner play together, probably. Like that's just a, I'm um, I'm just I don't know. I'm not. They maybe they get the attendance this year. By the way, what's that? Do you know who's number one in attendance this year? By the way, total or like average? Average. Uh, I got nothing. The Bulls. <sighs> They're still capitalizing on those like Michael Jordan mystique years. Like it's just it's, it's yeah. It's incredible to me. Um, Which makes it more interesting why they didn't go through the full tank job anyway. It's like if you knew that the attendance was not going to dip the way it was, like why would you not just go? Like I understand it from like the Hornets perspective, but the Bulls, like obviously they're still just raking in the money at the gate. And you made me look this up too per the conversation about teams moving to Seattle before. The Pelicans have two, we could say two top 10 players and their percentage of attendance is 95%, which is 17 in the league you have two top five players and it's 17th in the league that's just that's staggering to me yeah and it turns out the fans come to to philadelphia when they're good so i think that's that's (laughs) gone well i think them actually putting out a good product i can now understand a little bit more of like the nba's annoyance of the tank job for years and years because that's just such a big market and like now they're fun and everything and i don't want to go down that rabbit hole but you can see why the nba wants philadelphia to be good because uh people go to those games in philly yeah, I mean, Adam Silver's comments the other day, I don't know if you saw them, made me a little sick, where he was kind of complimenting the current regime. And it's Ugh. it's like, come on, let's not pretend that Sam Hinkie wasn't basically 90% responsible for all this. The only thing that maybe he doesn't do is sign J.J. Redick this offseason. I'm not sure if that would have been his M.O. So I, that was just like, the Sixers are a touchy, touchy topic for me. I, I get it. Like, the, you want the good teams to be good, but... I, I don't know. Like, would it be different if, you know, the Sixers were bad, but they had like a Lonzo Ball type rookie that just generated all this interest organically? Or like a Mark anyway. or a Markel Fultz who could have come in and added another layer, but unfortunately that's not been an option. If only they had drafted someone like a Markel Fultz, number one overall, who could add that last dimension to this team. <laughs> it's going to be, someone asked this for the podcast that I co-host when we did a mailbag. Do they think? Do we think the Sixers are going to shut Markel Fultz down for the rest of the year? Yes, it's just. I don't think we're going to see him. Right, I'm. I'm under the belief we do not see Markel Fultz on uh, the court. I honestly have like no. I I honestly have no idea what to say. But if it does happen, and you look at Nerlens Noel, Embiid, Simmons, and then Fultz all missing their first years, like that's just. I know you drafted some of those guys knowing they had injuries, but that's like a hell of a half decade. (laughs) Like that's just that's crazy. It's why the draft, it's just so difficult. It's so hard. And I understand why these teams are like, screw this. Like, I understand the Hornets and the, I mean, the Hornets were one pick away from Anthony Davis. Instead got MKG. <laughs> and uh, then you have the Magic just year after year, just the Mario Vazonias of the world, the Alfred Paytons. It's just, it's hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah, it's a, it's a crapshoot. And now, the, of course, I was so, I wasn't low on Jason Tatum, but. I thought it was kind of funny that the Celtics thought he was the best player in the draft, and then, lo and behold, of course that pans out too. So it's just a, it's a crapshoot how things translate to the to the NBA, like you say. Last thing before we go, got to give a shout out to my Kings fans. Love James Ham and all that Greg Wissinger and all those guys. Number three in attendance percentage, even with a terrible team that's starting Zach Randolph at the five. Oh, could we? Oh, could we not? I just it makes me so Zach Randolph leads. The Kings in crunch time minutes. Oh my god! It's just and he it's even when Dave Yeager benched George Hill in that loss to the Bucks on Saturday, he still closed with Zach Randolph. Not only did he close with Zach Randolph, Zach Randolph played the entire fourth quarter, 
it, this is a hot take, but could I say that the Kings would be better off this year with Collinson at point than George Hill? I mean, probably. Just okay. be, I mean, George Hill's out there tweeting angry face emojis now. So I don't know what he his. It's a weird situation for him when you think about it because uh, no one I don't think really thought that the Kings were gonna they weren't going for a playoff spot by signing these veterans. And yeah. I understand it was a culture play, but that only works when I think the veterans understand that's what they're coming in to do. And yes, Randolph is old enough to know. Oh yeah, no one else is giving me twenty four million over the next two years, and even Carter at eight million. So they get I was it. Say Vince Carter, I feel like knew exactly what was going on. But oh, he even said it. Yeah. He was like, I mean, they offered me a lot of money. So, so it was just like, but George Hill probably thought he was going to get even more money than he did on the market. So now he's settling to play for a team that really isn't playing him. And Jaeger's been favoring De'Aaron Fox over Hill, which he he kind of should, but his minutes distributions are weird. Like George Hill and Zach Randolph should not be. Like basically your two most heavily used crunch time players. I, I, no, excuse me, uh, Garrett Temple and Zach Randolph. I love Garrett Temple, but this team needs to just really steer into the youth minute. So the Kings are weird, but like you said, props to props to their fans for for really showing up. Free Papayanis. That's all I'm saying. Too many bigs. What is like? Why? Like why is Harry Giles even on this team? It's just, like. And that's the other thing is you have all these bigs and Willie Cauley-Stein has been a revelation. It's funny how he went from like all scal to now it's, oh, Willie Cauley-Stein's the guy. But you you have all these bigs and yet you're still playing Coach Kufos and Zach Randolph. It's just at, at some point you have to not play them, right? Like is it after the All-Star break or something? I just, I don't, what are you gaining? I have no idea with the Kings. Trying to predict what they're going to do is just, it's, uh, hey, you know, they beat the Warriors this year. So... Mission accomplished. Bogdanovich, they, 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 he's been good. Great runner. He had that uh, great off the glass runner to uh, ice that game. Yeah, great season. De'Aaron Fox, maybe a thing. It's a good way to end this podcast. Is kind of sad King stuff, which um, you know I like to go out on a high note uh, <laughs> on the podcast. So I'm glad we were able to do that. But Dan, as always, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and taking the time. Oh no, thank you for having me. I very much enjoyed it once again. All right, we can find you at Twitter at uh, Dan Favley, and we can uh, read you at Bleach Report, read you at NBA Math, and uh, go check out his latest uh, Bleach Report today, uh, outlining which team should go full tank, like the Kings. So uh, go check that out, and uh, we will probably have this again very soon, man. It's always fun. 